You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 5.5, The Doomed Regime. Thanks for joining me. As promised, we're going to dig a bit deeper into France in this half-episode, as kind of a supplemental to Episode 5. I hope last time gave you a decent picture of the broad historical narrative and social structure of France in the 18th century. Today I'd like to focus on foreign affairs and the country's political and economic organization or lack thereof. As we discussed last time, Louis XIV, the Sun King, was the original absolute monarch. He tried to centralize political authority in the government and take it away from the nobility. So, what did that actually mean? We've talked a bit in earlier episodes about the representative bodies that existed in feudal monarchies, institutions like the Polish Sejm or the British Parliament. France had its own versions. The first was the Etat Généraux, usually referred to in English as the Estates General. It was roughly equivalent to a modern national parliament. It had three chambers, one for the clergy, one for the nobles, and one for the commoners. In principle, the king needed the consent of the Estates General to raise taxes. In practice, there were lots of ways for French kings to get around principle and raise funds on their own. And there was no legal requirement for the king to call a meeting regularly, so he often simply didn't. It was risky for the king to call a meeting. The Estates General had enough political power to cause trouble if they wanted to, and who could predict how a group of several hundred might behave? There were seats reserved for commoners and low-ranking clergy, people who were obscure to the central government, who knew where their loyalties lay or what ideas they might have. Yes, that is foreshadowing. The kings of France had little incentive to ever call the estates, and for over a century, they decided it wasn't worth the risk. The estates general did not meet once between 1614 and 1789. The estates general were a massively important force in the history of the revolution, but they were dormant for most of the 18th century. For most of the period, the main representative bodies in France were regional assemblies of nobles that met in each province, called the Parlement. The number of parlements fluctuated a bit during the 1700s, but there were always around 30. Despite the name, a parlement was not really like a parliament in the modern sense of the word. You might see them described sometimes as courts of law. That's partially accurate. They did hear court cases and function kind of like a supreme court for their province, but they had a lot of other functions as well. The most important political function of the parlement was registering royal decrees. 
Effectively, laws and orders from the royal government did not take effect in a province until they were registered, officially approved and promulgated by the local parlement. Pretty weak stuff compared to the powers of, say, the British Parliament or the Polish Sejm, but Parlement could try to check the power of the king by delaying or even refusing registration. There really is no good modern equivalent of the Parlement. They had all kinds of unusual powers and practices you wouldn't expect from a modern legislature or a modern court. These weren't institutions governed by any single rationally developed constitution or set of procedures. The Parlement ran on a complicated, amorphous collection of traditions and precedents that had accrued piece by piece over centuries, and no two assemblies in the country operated exactly the same. Some of these traditions look a little absurd to modern eyes. For example, if the members chose to refuse registration of a decree, the king could effectively force it through using a legal procedure called the lit de justice, which literally means bed of justice. To invoke this procedure, the king had to show up at the Parlement in person, in a big, comfy, bed-like throne, hence the name. Famously, and perhaps predictably, Louis XVI once fell asleep during a lit de justice. I think that's more than just a funny anecdote. It goes to show how committed the Parlement were to maintaining tradition, even if it meant adhering to a farce like the lit de justice. And this was quite rational on their part. The Parlement represented the interests of the nobles, whose political and social rights came from tradition. Upholding the principle of deference to tradition helped protect those rights. Louis XIV was not a fan of the Parlement. They were one of the chief obstacles to royal power, and had been a major force behind some of the civil wars that tore France apart when Louis was a child. He curtailed many of their powers. This enabled him to implement legislation quickly without having to worry about keeping the Parlement happy, which is a big part of the reason he was able to transform France so quickly and so profoundly. In the power struggle after Louis XIV's death, Philippe, Duc d'Orléans, emerged as regent for the young Louis XV. Philippe had power, but he also had a problem. The Sun King's will greatly restricted the powers of the regent, and specifically named other men with whom he was supposed to share power. Philippe wanted more, but the dead king's wishes were clear. The only legal way for him to rule as he wished would be to somehow change the will. Issues of wills and inheritance were dealt with by the courts, in this case the Parlement of Paris. Philippe asked them to amend the will. The members of the Parlement saw an opportunity. They could demand almost anything from the most powerful man in France. They agreed to amend the will, effectively handing total power over to Philippe, but only under the condition that he restore all the powers of the Parlement that had been lost under Louis XIV. And not just their own powers, they wanted every parlement in France fully restored as well. They held all the cards, and Philippe had little choice but to agree. With their legal powers restored, the parlement set about reasserting themselves politically. Over the next few decades, the parlement and the representatives of the royal government waged bureaucratic and political war on one another all over France. With this struggle distracting them, confusion reigned and the quality of administration suffered. In those years, it must have seemed like chaos was the sole guiding principle of French administration. The competition between the Parlement and the royal bureaucracy was just one of many sources of trouble. 
France was just as fractured economically as it was politically. Within the kingdom's borders, there were hundreds of arbitrary trade barriers. These usually came in the form of tariffs or tolls. There might be a customs barrier between two provinces, or maybe between a town and the surrounding countryside, or some other property line. Sometimes they didn't correspond to anything at all. A tariff barrier might be the only remnant of some long, outdated political boundary. Nobles, guilds, or religious institutions were sometimes given monopoly rights over a certain good or service in some designated area. The right to engage in international trade was strictly controlled as well, with licenses, tariffs, and quotas. Weights and measures were not standardized. A pound in one village might be a pound and a half in the next, and two-thirds of a pound in the one after that. That might not sound like a big deal, but it's hard to do business with someone when you can't even agree on the quantities you're buying and selling. With all these official headaches to deal with, it's no surprise that a lot of people who wanted to engage in commerce just didn't bother and engaged in smuggling or black market trade instead. All this economic stuff can get a bit boring, but it has serious consequences. People starved to death while surplus grain rotted only a few miles away just because it was across some trade barrier and not worth paying the tariffs to export. It's important to note that what we're talking about here isn't protectionism. Modern-day protectionists believe in targeted trade barriers that they contend will serve the common good by stimulating some industry or serving some social purpose. The 18th century French system wasn't designed by economists through some rational process. These barriers weren't targeted, they were totally arbitrary, cobbled together piecemeal over the course of centuries. The only guiding principles of this system were inertia, blind deference to tradition, and political expedience. No modern person with even a basic understanding of economics would design a system like this. The arbitrary, needlessly complicated restrictions on trade in 18th century France contributed to poverty and suffering, and I don't think any modern economist of any ideological persuasion would disagree. It was actually in France in this era that the discipline of economics as we know it was invented, by a group of Enlightenment intellectuals who called themselves, fittingly, the economists. You could almost say that the system had so many different faults and was so pointlessly complicated that people had to invent an entirely new type of intellectual inquiry just to contemplate how bad it was. It's probably clear by now that you can fill a lot of airtime just talking about the various dysfunctions of 18th century France. But this is supposed to be a mini-episode, so before it balloons any further, let's move on to French foreign policy. As I mentioned last time, the massive territorial and military expansion under Louis XIV caused concern in almost every court in Europe. When the Sun King took the throne, the French army had about 60,000 men. Near the end of his reign, it peaked at over 600,000, more than 10 times bigger. And the army increased in quality as well, with new tactics, training, and organization. There was a massive shipbuilding campaign for the navy as well. Afraid of what such an ambitious king could accomplish with this powerful military, the other European powers banded together in coalitions to contain France. They were never quite able to land a knockout blow on Louis, but this stiff resistance slowed French expansion and cost valuable manpower and resources. 
Louis XIV set long-term strategic foreign policy goals for France that would be pursued by basically every French government we're going to talk about on this show. Louis's ambition was achieving what the French referred to as the country's natural borders. Basically, if you look at a topographical map of Europe, you'll see the French border roughly corresponds with several major geographic features. The English Channel to the north, the Atlantic Ocean to the west, Pyrenees Mountains to the southwest, the Mediterranean to the south, the Alps to the southeast, and the Rhine River to the east. Crossing any of those natural barriers was a major undertaking for an army of this era. Defenders had a huge advantage when holding a riverbank or a mountain pass compared to facing an enemy in the open ground, and D-Day-style amphibious invasions were practically impossible with 18th century technology. To secure the country's long-term security, French foreign policymakers wanted to conform France's borders to these natural barriers. That would mean annexing all the land between the seas, the mountains, and the Rhine, or failing that, achieving as much influence and control as possible over the independent states within that region. With these geographic fortifications on every border, they hoped to make France permanently safe from foreign invasion. You might remember in episode 4, I mentioned that a major goal of British foreign policy was preventing France from controlling any of the ports in modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands that could be used to invade Britain. Well, most of those ports are on the French side of the Rhine, so within the so-called natural borders. If you've ever wondered why France and Britain fought each other so often during this era, there's a big piece of the puzzle right there. Their fundamental national security goals were in direct conflict. The famous Franco-British rivalry wasn't actually that intense during the Renaissance. The British generally considered Spain their number one enemy, and the French tended to focus on Austria. But hostility really began to heat up during this period. The British felt threatened by any French influence in the Low Countries, and the French felt threatened unless they had control over the Low Countries. Combine that conflict with colonial and commercial competition, and you have a recipe for decades of struggle. A decent-sized chunk of the Holy Roman Empire was also on the wrong side of the Rhine. So this ambition to achieve the natural borders also brought France into conflict with Austrian foreign policy. Maintaining Habsburg dominance over the Holy Roman Empire meant fighting to defend it when threatened. Despite the opposition of these two great powers, Louis XIV made huge gains in his drive for the natural borders. But after his death, progress stalled. French armies were no longer the dominant force they'd been during the Sun King's glory years. Worse, when the French army did win conquests, the government seemed incapable of holding on to them at the negotiating table. This inflamed public opinion. The army captured and occupied most of modern Belgium during the War of the Austrian Succession, then relinquished it right back to Austria in the treaty after the war. France had been allied with the Prussians, on the winning side, but gained almost nothing in the peace. Public outrage was so great that new idioms entered the lexicon. A Frenchman who wanted to call someone foolish would say he was as stupid as the peace. Doing a hard job with little or no compensation was referred to as working for the king of Prussia. During the Seven Years' War, the French army again seized valuable strategic territory, and again handed it right back at the end of the war, this time without even bothering to negotiate for it. Louis XV considered it dishonorable to conquer through diplomatic tricks. 
France's enemies paid back Louis' chivalry by taking over much of the French colonial empire at the peace settlement. When people criticized the king for not even trying to strike a bargain for some of the conquered land, he quipped, I'm the king of France, not a shopkeeper. Think of how that might sound to the soldiers who made sacrifices in his campaigns, or to the people who lost friends or family in the war. Have I mentioned that everyone hated Louis XV? France intervened in the American War of Independence, largely to avenge the unhappy result of the Seven Years' War. And it was a very shrewd move. The British were defeated with a fraction of the time and effort expended in the Seven Years' War. But once again, the French government could not deliver at the treaty talks. The British much preferred giving concessions to the weak, faraway United States over conceding anything that might strengthen France, a powerful rival right across the English Channel. The resulting treaty was very generous to the Americans, but the French only gained a few small colonial outposts. Even after a clear, convincing victory, France was not one inch closer to achieving Louis' ambition of the natural borders. It must have been emotionally satisfying to avenge the Seven Years' War, but intervening in the American War of Independence was a net negative for France. On top of financing their own operations, the French had subsidized much of the American war effort as well, just as the British had done so effectively for the Prussians during the wars of Frederick the Great. But French finances couldn't stretch as far as the British. The king's chief minister had actually argued against aiding the American rebels. He didn't think France could afford it. With apologies to my forefathers, he was probably right. During the war, the government spent twice as much on the war effort alone as it brought in in gross revenue. Royal credit tanked. French finances were in a dangerous state before the conflict. The deluge of spending during the American War of Independence pushed them to the point of imminent crisis. So, to tie everything together, the combination of that massive war debt and a series of bad harvests in the 1780s brought France to the breaking point. King Louis XVI had no choice but to introduce radical new economic policies and huge tax hikes. The resurgent Parlement resisted bitterly and defeated or weakened most of his reforms. In 1788, the money finally ran out, the king had no choice but to call the Estates General for the first time in over a hundred years, thus setting in motion the events that would lead to the revolution. I think that's a good stopping point in the narrative. I hope these last two episodes have given you some sense of what France was like before the revolution, and hopefully some hints as to why the old order was headed for such a sudden dramatic collapse. Because that's how it happened. The monarchy wasn't toppled by some insurgent plot, it faltered in the face of a national crisis. New systems and new leaders rose up out of necessity, only after the old regime had proved itself incapable of addressing the mounting national crisis. That's all for now. Next time, we'll be talking about 18th century warfare and military life. Thanks again to those of you who have contributed to the fundraiser on Patreon.com. Submissions for the bonus episode are closing at midnight this Sunday, U.S. Central Standard Time. So, better get on that soon if you have an idea. As always, please come say hello on Facebook and Twitter, and please review the show on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? 
or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti. If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.